want to read to you a, a few sentences. Every day, babies are being born who will live in the 21st century and to whom we must bequeath a safe and a humane world. On behalf of all of our people, I wish to tell those who are concerned and yet hopeful about the future, all of you, that we shall work to achieve that goal, and we can only do it by working together. That's Mikhail Gorbachev. So he's talking about, in some ways, what you're facing this afternoon or this evening, going into the future. In his case, it's looking globally at the lives of hundreds of millions of people into the next century. But in some ways, it's the same. It's a voyage from where we are and maybe from some sense of being protected and silent into something new or unknown. And what he suggests is both that he's hopeful and concerned and that our success will come through doing it together, through the sense of our connectedness and community. In a way, the retreat itself, and certainly spiritual practice, is a voyage. That's one of the great metaphors for spiritual life. It's a kind of a journey. And at first, it's the encounters of the dragons and the demons that await you just as you enter the cave to go down into the underworld, what you haven't seen before. Or in first, it's the encounter with the kinds of difficulties that we carry with us but have not faced so directly, have distracted ourselves from and run from. And with that, there's often the sense of a need to change ourselves, to purify, to release. And it has its own place and rhythm and function in spiritual practice. And then as one goes on, the sense may change that it's not just to purify and change yourself, but perhaps it's more to be open to yourself and to be open to what the world offers with its beauties and its sorrows. And then as you become more open, some other understanding comes that in openness, there is the necessity of letting go, that no matter what it is, good or bad or beautiful or ugly, that to be open requires us to acknowledge and face and experience that and then to move or allow ourselves to be moved to what comes next. It's like the change of seasons. You are now in a change of seasons. The season of silence is ending. The season that filled with words and activity has arrived. It's a busy season, the one you're entering. If you try to hold on to the silence or the peace or some particular insight, what do you think will happen? What? Suffer. Right. It's not that... Um, you should or shouldn't, that's quite up to you. Feel free to hold on if you wish. That's our individual decision. 
But does it work is the question. So there's first a wanting to change and purify and then more a sense of opening and becoming something. And in the deepest sense, a shift of identity, a sense that we were something that we took to be ourselves, our pain or our story or our um, personality or our body. And we fix that often. But maybe that's not really who we are. Maybe that's not all of who we are. So can we be ready to enter into the unknown? There's a story that I like to tell at the end of retreats which talks about the courage that it takes to live a spiritual life. And the courage to live a spiritual life is not so much the courage to force yourself to do certain things or the courage like climbing mountains or sitting without moving for days on end. It's more the courage to recognize that we don't know what's coming next. It's the courage to sense and experience the unknown and not fill ourselves so much with all the defenses that we have of plans and hopes and categories. The truth is that no one has ever lived our lives before. One of the wonderful things about life and nature is that it keeps saying, today, today on this earth, 250,000 babies were born. A quarter of a million new human beings came out into this earth. And every single one of them is unlike any human being that ever lived before. Isn't that remarkable? Every day, here's a quarter million more new experiments in humanity. And you are one of those. And no one has ever been like you before. So no one can tell us exactly how we're to do it, because it's not been done. When Mahatma Gandhi was killed at the uh, end of the time uh, of Indian partition and independence, the Gandhian movement was in great disarray for about a year. And then the people who'd worked with him decided to have a congress or conference to figure out how to carry on that work in the new India. And they asked one man in particular to lead that conference or congress, who was Gandhi's chief disciple, a man named Vinoba Bhave, wonderful old Indian wise man. And Vinoba said, we've done all we can right now. I have nothing more to say. We did all we could with Gandhiji, and now let it rest. And they insisted and insisted, and finally Vinobaji relented and he said, all right, I'll come to your Congress, but I have nothing to say. I have no plans. If you wish me to come, though, I ask one thing of you. Postpone the Congress for six months so that I can walk there. And so they postponed it and he walked on foot across India from one part of India to the other. And in those six months, he walked from village to village 
listening to what was going on for people, their difficulties, having community meetings, just listening. In some way in life, that's all that people around us want. If you look at the people, people mostly just want to be listened to and acknowledged. And he knew that and somehow did so. And partway through the journey, there was a village with people so poor they didn't have enough to eat, as in many villages in India. And he said, why don't you grow your own food? He said, we would love to, but we have no land. We are disenfranchised. No land, no resources. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll go back to Delhi, I'll speak with Prime Minister Nehru, who's a friend of mine, I'll go to the Congress party, and we'll pass a law that gives some land to the people who have none. And they all went to sleep. In the morning he got up, and instead of leaving the village, he called them all back together and apologized. He said, I've made a mistake. He said, even if I go back there, and it takes me three years to talk to people and get the legislation passed, by the time it's done and watered down, and then it goes to the states and then the provinces and the districts and the, and the headmen of the different villages, you're not going to end up with any of that land anyway. I know how it works in politics. So that's a mistake. He said, I don't know what to do. Someone stood up in the meeting said, how much land do they need? 16 families, 5 acres each, 80 acres. said, well, I have land in this village. I offer 80 acres that they might have it. Vinobhaji said, no, we cannot take your 80 acres now. If you sincerely offer it, go home and check with your children who will inherit it and your wife. And make sure it's okay with your family. He went back, returned again, and said, yes, they give permission. And so 80 acres was gifted to those 16 families. He went on foot to the next village and again heard of hungry people and asked, why don't you grow your own food? Same problem, we have no land, no resources. So he told the story of the first village, and a man stood up, partly in the spirit of Gandhi and the greatness of Vinoba, the kind of integrity that he brought to that, and said, I too would like to offer something to our new India and to these people. I'll offer a hundred acres to these twenty families. And again went home and checked with his family and made the offering. And by the time Vinoba had walked all the way across, I think the meeting was, he walked from Bombay to Hyderabad or something like that, all the way across central India and arrived to the Congress he had collected 2,200 acres of land for landless people. And at that meeting, that became the beginning of the Indian Bhutan land reform movement. And for 14 years thereafter, Vinoba Bhave and many of his followers walked on foot through every province and district and almost every village in India and collected 10 million acres of land from villagers who could offer to others who were poor. And yet when he went to go to that Congress, he had no idea that he had anything to contribute or what should be done. The courage and the commitment is really one of not knowing and instead of being present and listening as you have 
for this whole week. Read you a poem from Rumi. A certain man caught a bird in a trap. The bird says, Sir, you have eaten many cows and sheep in your life, and you're still hungry. The little bit of meat on my bones won't satisfy you either, now will it? (laughs) But if you let me go, I'll give you three pieces of wisdom. One I'll say standing on your hand, one on your roof, and one I'll speak on the limb of the tree. The man was interested, so he freed the bird and let it stand on his hand. Number one. Do not believe in absurdity, no matter who says it. (laughs) The bird flew and lit on the man's roof. Number two, do not grieve over what is past, which is to say, do not not keep yourself bound in what is past. It's over. When it is finished, let it be past. By the way, the bird continued, in my body there's a huge pearl weighing as much as ten copper coins. It was meant to be the inheritance of you and your children, but now you've lost it. You could have owned the largest pearl in existence, but evidently it was not meant to be. The man started wailing like a woman in childbirth. The bird said, didn't I just say, don't hold on to what's already in the past, and also don't believe in absurdity? My entire body doesn't weigh two copper coins. How could I have a pearl that heavy inside me? The man came to his senses. All right, tell me number three. And the bird says, yes, you've made such good use of the first two. (laughs) Don't give advice to someone who's groggy or falling asleep. Don't throw seeds on the sand. Wake up now while you have the chance. So this is from Rumi, who likes to play in the realm of the spirit. The commitment that's necessary to leave a retreat is really that to live any spiritual life, is one of listening and opening to what presents itself one day after another, the sorrows and the beauty and the struggles and the lovely things, and to find in us a capacity to see what's true that's there and say yes to that. That's what Thomas Merton described when he saw the most beautiful statues in all of Asia, this this cliff that's carved into Buddhas in Sri Lanka. And he said these peaceful smiles, he said, I got a sense like an enlightenment Merton had, that here was the Buddha sitting at such peace because he rejected nothing. The peace not of running away from the world, but of sitting and rejecting nothing whatsoever. From that capacity to not know, to not be sure, to rest in unknowing, instead comes a capacity then for us to bless, to appreciate. There are big and small cycles in spiritual life. When I came back from the monastery 
the first period of training I had done starting in the 1960s in Thailand and Burma, Laos. After being in robes for several years and studying as a layman for some years in monasteries, I was very calm and very spacious and quite concentrated um, and my, cons- my, my consciousness was really empty and pure. I sat with my father who'd had an accident, was in a hospital um, just some weeks after I got back, um, and almost died from an overdose of anesthesia. He had general anesthetic for this and came very close to dying. And I was just sitting there meditating. He asked me afterward, and I was doing metta for him, how it, how it was for me. And I said, well, I was very calm. I was just meditating and doing some loving-kindness meditation for you. He got really upset. He said, don't you care for me? You know, you weren't... But I was very, very calm. For a year, I had no fear. My mind was just so spacious. But I got involved back in graduate school studying psychology, which interested me. I got in therapy. I got a job driving a taxi in Boston to pay for graduate school. Um, I got in a relationship with a woman that I'd known before. Um, And by the end of that year, um, (laughs) it was almost as if I had never gone to those years in the monastery. That's the truth. There was, however, one big difference. It was very clear. I was doing the same old things, but I would find myself in the middle of doing them and I'd say, far out, I thought I'd never do that one again, and here I am doing it. It was really clear to me. And being clear, I also remembered or sensed or knew from my spiritual practice that there was some other way. And so that began the process, not of just seeing something different, but actually of becoming different. And for me, it was a process with many, many cycles to it. Inner cycles and outer cycles. Times when you're in silence, times when you relate back in the world of the business of your life or your, your family or the political or economic environment. When I look at my own practice over the past 20 years, five years, I sense that uh, in an odd way, I've kind of worked my way down the chakras. In the beginning of practice, I started uh, studying Buddhism and um, got very excited by the Dharma, and then I went to monasteries where I did training, and it had a lot to do with my mind getting insight and vision and understanding. And I wanted to know, there's a certain kind of power in knowing. I wanted to be someone who knew, who understood. And so I spent those years both learning and training my mind. And, and I did. I did it very hard. I would sit and do whatever the teacher said for weeks and months. And lights and visions and understanding and insight and all that kind of stuff happened. And it was very far out and I felt like I knew a lot which was a problem, of course, but <laughs> and still remains a problem sometimes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> we all just... <sighs> the 
They say, if you really want to know about a spiritual teacher, speak to their spouse. (laughs) Anyway, at some point, in returning to this country and practicing, what I began to see was, although I had a lot of clarity and understanding, um, I was really out of touch with myself emotionally. I'd had, like most people in America, it turns out, a um, pretty painful childhood. Uh, and and uh, the um, nuclear family in which I grew up was <laughs> nuclear, right, as they are. Um, and part of that strategy to deal with that was just not to feel very much, to go into my mind. So I realized that I didn't love very well. I didn't even know how to be intimate in a deep way with people or things, and that I was quite frightened. And I went through a series of difficult relationships, just replaying the old patterns again. So I got into therapy, and I continued to meditate, and I worked a lot with loving-kindness and compassion meditation, all while I was teaching and and, uh, did my graduate work. And for ten years... The main work that I had focused on, and still do to some extent, was simply learning how to love better and how to feel to reclaim the feelings, the whole range of feelings from joy to sorrow to anger, and with that to have some capacity for empathy and feeling and love. Then it dawned on me at some point that not only had I not lived in my feelings, but in some ways I hadn't lived so fully in my body. I had the gift of a relatively healthy and good body, and I used it. I could meditate and sit up all night, and I liked to climb mountains and do all kinds of things like that. Um, But I used it rather than inhabited it so much, if that makes any sense to you. At least some of you may recognize. Um, And there was some sense that I've had in these past years now that it was really important not just to see and know or to connect through love and feelings, but to integrate it cellularly, to embody what I know and feel. And to embody that means somehow to inhabit more fully the the body that I have. In a way, this is all talking about deeper and deeper degrees of intimacy, Dogen Zenji, who is the founder of the Soto Zen School, said, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. And so for me, the cycles of practice have been gradually learning how to touch more and more of my own experience, and with it, then, more and more of the fullness of the life around me. And in that, I've had cycles of retreat, and cycles of service, of teaching, or working in refugee camps, or um, cycles of parenting, cycles of time much more quietly alone. There are, there are different cycles. Those are natural for us. We breathe in and out. Our heart opens and closes. Your heart isn't supposed to stay open all the time. Even flowers kind of close at night. <laughs> It's true. So don't get some idea you're supposed to be a certain state or a certain way. I hope you saw that this week. It's more about flexibility and listening 
And now, honoring what cycle you are in in your life. One of the questions I might pose to you in your spiritual practice is what cycle are you in? Is it time for more inward silence? Is it time to go and serve in some way? Is it time for more attention to intimate relationship? Is it time for, for care in, in the world in some important fashion? And if you ask, you'll get a sense very often. So it's an honoring, it's a listening. There's a Zen phrase that says, there, in spiritual life, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't really matter how big the garden is. So sometimes one sits, which is really important. Sitting is critical. And by sitting, I mean whatever it is that, on, that awakens us, that, where we honor that reconnection with ourselves. Because that's why the world is, is crazy and um, toxic and um, destructive as it is. Because people and our contemporary culture has taught people to be disconnected from their feelings or their hearts or their bodies or the environment around. And so to be still and reconnect is critical. And no political or economic work, no matter how important, will help this earth very much if it doesn't come from that place of interconnectedness and peace. It will just add to the trouble. So both of those cycles are necessary. In a way, this kind of listening and courage, um, it may be confusing, well, what should I do? Should I go to see Mother Teresa? work with her, or should I go join a Zen monastery, or should I work with the homeless in San Francisco, or should I just, you know, go talk to my parents, and so forth. It seems to be very complicated, but it's not. It has to do, as Vinoba Bhavi spoke about, with what's really right in front of us. William Blake said at one point, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. Let me ask you to do a meditation exercise tonight. So sit up for a moment. It's just going to be two minutes of it. It's said in the Theravada Buddhist tradition that at the time of death, the consciousness that you have is significant in determining what happens after death. And there's a particular meditation that we'll do now for two minutes that's recommended for that time, um, one of the meditations. Um, so let your eyes close. It'll just be two minutes. Come back to your inner silence. Feel your breathing. And feel this human body that you've been given as a gift of life. And feel, as you do, its mortality, that it is here for an unknown time with you. And that in 
40 years or 20 years or two years or two days, someday this will die, this body. Absolutely guaranteed. And at that time, it becomes important to be really present and open. Now the meditation is this, sensing the inevitability of your own death, knowing that it could come at any time. Look back over your life to date and bring to mind, picture, remember, or sense two good deeds that you have done, two things that you've done that were good, that you're happy that you did. And in remembering them, also notice what happens to your consciousness, to your mind, as those deeds become apparent how it affects you. Coming back for a moment, I'd like to hear what you saw from a few people at least. I know it's hard to say in public your good deeds sometimes. You know, if I asked you, would you please recite a hundred rotten things you've done, people would have this whole long list, yes, but it's all right. See, and sometimes they're quite, you know, they seem kind of mundane, but that's fine. took care of your father when he was dying. Thank you.
being there for one of the clients that you work with, really present, and being there for your for your niece. Seeing my husband through his death, and I had a hard time thinking of the second one. Mm-hmm. And then I thought of a young woman that I met just for a minute when I was visiting my son in Syracuse, and I was kind and interested and loving. And she said, "What a gift that you came into this store." And I haven't thought about her since. Mm-hmm. So seeing your husband through his death and having that five minutes, that minute in the store where you brought a presence and a caring to this woman, to this person. Thank you. Others? Built a radio station for Pacifica Foundation. So someone that you knew or'd worked with a bit was fired and in despair, and you sent to her anonymously some flowers and candy and money and support. A couple more. You rescue spiders when you clean. You put them outside or something. Uh-huh. How many people had a hard time thinking of two good deeds? Raise your hand just to know. Do you know what that says? Does it say that you're the rotten people among us, you know, the ones who haven't, don't do anything good? What it really speaks to is how pervasively we judge ourselves. You know, you've had this lifetime of 100,000 deeds. I'm sure there are many good ones in there. But they come and you say, oh, no, I would throw that one out. I reject that one. That's no good. It really is a reflection, not all, only the people who raise their hands, but I'm sure many of the others in this room as well. That sense of unworthiness and of judging ourselves is so deep in lots of us. And that's just important to understand. We don't need to do that, even though we may have learned it. You don't have to sit up there on the bench with the gavel and it's good to learn that. Really, really important. Can you hear the quality of the deeds that people have said? I was there for my father when he died, or I'm there for a client. Or in a moment, in a store, I was just there to be really present for a person. Or I rescue spiders, or I sent something to this woman who really needed it in a time of distress. One nurse raised her hand and said, I don't do much, really. But I work in the emergency room sometimes, and when children have died, I, I hold their bodies for a while. I just need to do that. Somebody else said, I give parking spaces when we both get there at the same time. <laughs> and they lived in Arizona, which was really great giving, I mean, in the sun and everything. Like that. 
someone else, a woman raised her hand, who had worked with, done refugee work and done hospice work, and she had kind of a resume of good deeds. She said none of those came up. She remembered being five years old or six, and a car broke down in front of her house in the early 50s. Steam came out, and this elderly couple were in there. They called, they came in and used, barred the phone and called the, called the garage, and then they were waiting there a long time, and she saw them sitting there, and it was a hot day, and she went and asked her mother if it would be all right to get them something to eat and drink. And she got a little tray and put lemonade and sandwiches on it and carried it out to them. And this was a woman who was in her 70s and done all these other things and looked back over her life and the purity of just that simple act. Do you hear what ties all of these different deeds together? Is a tremendous simplicity and, and intimacy and personal connection. When you look back over your life, what really matters is how well have I loved? And that love is never done in generalities. It's always done in a moment with a tree or a spider or, or a person that you meet or a person close to you. In some way, the courage that's asked of us requires a great commitment. People hear about non-attachment in spiritual life and confuse non-attachment with running away. It's actually quite the opposite. If you sit on your zafu and you were to get up every time something got a little uncomfortable or difficult for you, would you learn to meditate? Not a prayer. Not possible. If you enter a marriage or a love relationship or some work that you care about, that also is your spiritual life. That's the place to learn patience, compassion, loving kindness, understanding. And it requires the same deep commitment that sitting on your zafu does. You know, well, this marriage didn't work out, I'll try another one. These kids, well, somebody else can raise them, maybe I'll have some other kids. I mean, it's gotten to that almost in our culture. And what we need is really quite the opposite, is to, to sense and honor a much greater capacity, that we're much greater beings than that, that we have some whole other way we could be. I read in the paper one of those stories, I read a couple months ago, one of those stories that you always read about mothers picking up cars off their children. This was a man who was at a construction site and a big um, steel and concrete pipe rolled on a young five-year-old boy. And it was a, he was a 58-year-old man who'd had a heart attack four years before and wasn't supposed to lift anything heavy. And he went over and he lifted this pipe. Um, and he said he thought, he knew it would be really heavy, but he did it. Uh, and he thought it must weigh a thousand pounds. It actually, they went back and, and waited. It was three thousand pounds. This was in the newspaper. He didn't lift the, uh, he probably lifted one end of it. He only lifted fifteen hundred pounds. <laughs> right? But he did it. He did it. He did that. That's true. That's a true story which is to say that we have capacities for caring, for honoring life, for loving one another, that are enormous. And they require both 
a time and space like this to reconnect and remember them. Um, And then the kind of care and patience and one thing after another, the kind of directness that I've been speaking of, to really bring them alive in our life. One of my favorite images, I read uh, a series of articles about adoption of young children. Um, And this was a couple who wanted to adopt children um, and decided if they were going to do it, they might as well not wait in line for the handful of healthy, white, Caucasian babies, but adopt some children that had a much harder time having a home. So they rode off to India and asked to adopt a a young Indian child and were sent this little boy, or went and picked him up in whatever Indian city it was, brought him home. Well, he was very young, only a couple months old when they got him. And by the end of a year, they found out two great difficulties with him. First is that he was profoundly deaf. And the second was that he had cerebral palsy, which means that he would never walk. And they, they were part of this group of people adopting from overseas. And so they got him a little wheelchair, you know, instead of walking, so that he could learn to roll. There's nothing wrong with his mind. He was very bright, but he couldn't hear, and his body was partly paralyzed. And so they got him a wheelchair, and they started to teach him sign language, to speak to him in signing. And they joined and started a collective of other parents who had adopted disabled children. And then the next thing they did was they rode off to India, and they asked the adoption agency there if they could find for them another deaf child so this boy would have a companion. And in this article, there was a picture of these two little boys, very dark South Indian little boys with incredible, brilliant white smiles, just the most beautiful faces. And they got this second boy to come who was also deaf to live with him. Imagine with that kind of suffering that this child that you love, that you've gotten, turns out to be deaf and cerebral palsy, and your response is, could I have another, please? (laughs) Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that extraordinary? There's a wonderful sutra I have here called the Avatamsaka Sutra. This is only one part of it. It's one of the great Mahayana Chinese Buddhist texts. And among the different things that it talks about, it describes tens of thousands of world systems, universes made of fire, universes made of stone, made of clouds, made of flowers, made of the kind of material water, the kind of form our world is. Every possible universe And then in all of these different universes, it describes the Buddhas who appear. There's a Buddha for each universe, or Bodhisattva. And they all have wonderful names. The Buddha of the heart of infinite courage, or the Buddha uh, where golden light shines out of every pore, you know, or the Buddha bestowing flowers with every breath. And it just goes on and on with these names of these different Buddhas. The interesting thing is that in every one of these universes, no matter what they're made of, and whether they're the beautiful ones, the flower lands, or the painful, fiery ones, in every one of these universes, there is coming into being and dying, there's birth and death, and there is um, pleasure and pain, um, 
there's suffering in every in every universe of some form or other. And the teachings of the Buddhas in every one of these universes is the same. And that teaching is the teaching of sorrow through attachment and fear and confusion and a limited identity of ourself. And the release from that, the teachings of joy and freedom and infinite loving kindness. And a lot of the images are of the Buddha sitting in the middle of whatever universe that is, simply radiating out loving kindness to the beings that are there. Now that gets to sound very kind of idealistic. You know, here we are, the Buddha of the great age, radiating loving kindness to all beings. It's really simpler than that, again, to come back. There's a poem from Yeats when he turned 50 after his career as a poet, when he matured, where he describes one morning sitting in a tea shop on a road and looking out the window through the glass and the marble tabletop, and all of a sudden, everything was filled with light. He said, for 20 minutes, more or less, the truth he discovered was all that matters is to bless and be blessed. And it was like his whole life was culminated in that moment of seeing the light in every being and in everything. What would it mean to leave here not so much with a plan, because you'll go back to your old habits and to the suffering of the world and its complexity, and you can't hold on to the stillness, but to bring a sense of those moments that were those good deeds with the people you meet, with the way you drive, to bring a kind of blessing to each thing that we encounter. You can't do it all at once. It's going to take some practice. That's all right. But it's really who we are in some way. When my wife and I and two good friends were traveling in India, to do a radio show for National Public Radio on spirituality and social responsibility, how they come together. We interviewed Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama and uh, Vimla Thakkar and a whole variety of wonderful um, Indian women and men who were teachers and spiritual leaders. And after we interviewed the Dalai Lama, you know, he's incredibly busy. He's the head of state, and he's dealing with what's happening with the Chinese in Tibet, which is very, very painful, tragic. And he's the spiritual leader for these millions of people, but he still gave us an interview. He'd visited the center in Barry during a three-month retreat and given some teachings there. and um, Very, very kind. And when you go see the Dalai Lama, it's not like he sits on a throne and you're down here. But, you know, he welcomes you into this wonderful room and you sit down and he pours you tea and what can I do for you? He's incredibly gracious and personal. And he answered all our questions and when we were done and we're ready to leave, he said, don't you want to take my picture? Because we all had cameras with us, but we were so excited just to be with him, so wonderful. So I said, yeah. He said, listen, give your cameras to my attendant. He knows how to work all these Western cameras. And then we can be in the picture together. So we stood up and he put his arms around us and there we're all, my wife and I and these friends are just grinning and there's the Dalai Lama. And then he grabbed my hand 
after the pictures were over. And, and he was going to say something very personal. And I thought he, he had written a foreword to a book I'd done, and he knew about the center and Barry and retreats. So I thought he was going to ask, how's the teaching going? You know, because basically we work for the same company. You know, <laughs> how are sales this year, right? <laughs> but he didn't. He held my hand and he turned to me and he said, you're so skinny, you should eat more. <laughs> this is the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and it was, it was the, the Tibetan teachings of what is in front of you and how do you care for it. Now to do that, I guess I'll say one other thing, because I, I went to this, this uh, another great Tibetan Lama, Dujim Rinpoche, at one point and had to a lot of difficulty in the first few years of retreats getting burned out after three or four or five retreats in a row with a hundred or more people, um, I would get to where I felt closed and I didn't want to do interviews, or if I did, I really didn't want to listen. It was too painful, too much in a row. I said, could you give me some practice or some way to work with this, thinking if I visualize this bodhisattva of infinite green light and surround myself and say some mantra or other that all the gooky stuff wouldn't touch me, right? And I wouldn't have to feel the pain and that of other beings and I'd just be kind of encapsulated in something. And he listened to all my kind of early difficulties and asked whether I kept the precepts. That was really his concern. Was, I, was my virtue and integrity there? And it was it was fairly good, as you know, more or less. Um, and uh, so finally, he said, "Yes, I can help you." And he's this is the one of the, the handful of the greatest masters of tantra that there is in Tibet. And I said, "Great, he's going to give me this tantric practice, and everything will be fine." And he said, "You know what I suggest for you after getting all the information?" He said, "I suggest you teach shorter retreats and take longer vacations." <laughs> so the last thing that's asked for in us with this kind of simp- simplicity is just an honesty about what's here. You're not asked to be superhuman or to do something extraordinary. But in some ways, it's very, very ordinary to love the ordinary, to bring your sense of blessing to the encounter of just what there is in the person in the store that day, in the way that you park your car. And to bring, if you want there to be peace on the earth, Angela Sulace's poem said, if in your heart you create a manger, then God will once again become a child on earth. If in your actions you act as the Buddha, you can even pretend, it's all right, pretend you're the Buddha. Someday you won't know the difference, right? If in your actions you bring that kind of concern and simplicity and honesty, then the rest will take care of itself. There's one last thing I want to read you to to end tonight, and it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm sometimes reluctant to read it. Um, because it makes it sound almost too mundane, but I think it's fitting for the end of this retreat. This is from a book of a man who, like many Westerners in the 60s, decided 
to do a spiritual journey, and so he went to Japan. The idea of enlightenment was really good. He took a leave of absence from his teaching job, in this case, shaved his head and went to the Zen monastery. He said it was awful. The food gave him diarrhea. Sleeping on cardboards gave him a backache. The, the fellow monks there treated him like a Western fool and laughed behind his back. And he said it was one of those times when you knew everybody knew and you had no idea what they knew, but you knew you didn't know it. <laughs> And then he'd go see the master and nothing much happened in all that practice. Finally, at the end, it was a very famous temple in Kyoto and one of the great Zen masters of Japan. He was extended an invitation to have uh, a long interview with the master, which was rare. So he went in, this wise and great accomplished teacher, and bowed and so forth. And they looked at each other, and then he began to shift his weight, the master, from one knee to another, and just as deliberately as shifting his weight, he reached for his backside and scratched himself in a way that was rather impolite in public. And then he said, I have hemorrhoids. They hurt and they itch. There was nothing in my spiritual manual as to how to reply to a remark like this from a Zen master. I kept my mouth shut and pretended to be thoughtful. The hemorrhoids come from stress, you know, from worrying about tourists burning down this fire trap of a temple, from worrying about trying to get enough funding from the Japanese businessmen to keep it in repair, from arguing with my wife and children who are not as holy as I am, and from despairing over the quality of the lazy young fools who want to be priests nowadays. Sometimes I think I would like to get a little place in Hawaii and just play golf for the rest of my life. He leaned to one side and scratched again. It was this way before I was enlightened, you know, and now it's the same after I'm enlightened. A long pause while he silently gave me time to consider these words and actions. Rising, he motioned me to an alcove to follow him to the entrance of the temple, and there was an ancient scroll, hundreds of years old, that I had passed before. He said it was time for me to go home, where he felt I had been a thirsty man looking for a drink and all the while standing knee-deep in a flowing stream. Then he read to me the words on the scroll in Japanese and then in English. There is really nothing you must be, and there's nothing you must do. There's really nothing you must have, and nothing you must know. There's really nothing you must become. However, it helps to understand that fire burns, and when it rains, the earth gets wet. Whatever, he said, there are consequences. Nobody is exempt. And then with a wink, the master bowed and turned away, scratching himself. <laughs> the Zen poem of two lines from Basho to end. The temple bell stops. But the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. The retreat ends, but the practice that you've begun here in silence now continues as you 
live in this unknowing from one day and one moment to another. And you have within you, you've learned here, the heart of what you'd learn in a long training period in one of the best monasteries in Asia. And you already understand it. And now there's this opportunity to bless and to be blessed and to learn to bring it alive. And it's quite wonderful and I'm happy for you. So I thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.